The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Okay, this evening we're going to continue our study in church history, and what we're doing is we're tracing the history of Baptist down from the first century through 2,000 years of history till today, and uh, we're looking for the church in history that is the same as the one that Jesus began with his 12 apostles. And we believe that a true church in the world is necessary because God gave the promise, or Christ gave the promise particularly, to his disciples when he said that the gates of hell would never prevail against the church. And so I've said so many times before as we've looked into our history that that is a necessary claim. Christ promised it, and so we do fully expect that we find the church in all the centuries since the very beginning. And then we also think that it's necessary uh, to have those doctrines of Christ because if we didn't have them, then what we would want to do is just do an all-out search to find what those doctrines are because we can never be right until we do what Jesus did. Like Brian saying, I want to be like Jesus. Well, that also means following the doctrines that, that Jesus taught. And so this is one of the, I think one of the, the, the best parts of this, a part that I really like myself, is that going back into the study of church history, we, we find those doctrines that we commonly believe. We find the same things that we've been teaching in our church, in these churches uh, that we've traced throughout history. And so that's just a thrill to me to uh, discover that and find out exactly what these people believed. And it seems almost too incredible to believe, I think, that people would claim to be the true church, and yet what they do in their church is not what Jesus did. There are very good historians that say that in the New Testament, and we believe this to be true because we can read it, we understand it, that baptism, for instance, was by immersion. And good historians admit that it wasn't until sometime much later after the apostolic era that that was changed to sprinkling. And these same historians who know what the Bible teaches on that will still become members of church that, churches that practice sprinkling or practice infant baptism. And there are good church historians that admit that the polity of the church in the New Testament times was that of a local church government, and yet those very same historians would become members of churches that have a hierarchical form of government. And then they admit that the New Testament teaches that you can never uh, force someone into membership. There is no such thing as compulsory membership in the church, and yet through the practice of infant baptism, there are people that are made involuntary members of the church. So I really don't understand how anybody that says they're a Christian, they want to be like Jesus, and they want to follow what Jesus did, would change the things that Jesus said and do something other than what Jesus said. And as Baptists, we don't feel, or Baptists in this church at least, we don't feel that we have the right to do that. That Jesus Christ is the head of the church, he's the only authority for the church, and so we have to follow exactly what he says, and none of us have the right to change anything that Jesus did. And so Baptists down through the centuries have rejected all these many different changes and we've held on to this New Testament model that Christ gave us from the very beginning. And there are historians that also admit that that is true. 
that Baptists are still holding on to, same things, the same things that were taught in the New Testament times. And then they pointed out, and we admit, as Baptists, we'll admit to that, that this, that we weren't always called Baptists. All these groups that came down through history, they weren't always called Baptists, but they did have the same beliefs. They believe the same things that we do today in the Berean Baptist Church. Now this evening, rather than to take you back to the beginning and give you a long review about things, I just want to continue in what we were talking about last week, and that is the fourth period of the church. And this is a a lengthy time of several centuries that's known as the Middle Ages. And so if you'll look at your outline tonight, it might look a little funny, but we're starting with number four, and that is the Middle Ages, which is from 476, or this period of church history, from 476 to 1453 A.D. And just to refresh you a little bit on that, the beginning date is the fall of the Roman Empire in the west, and the other date is the fall of Constantinople in the east. And this is the period that saw Roman Catholicism that had been established as a ch- as a church state ch- or uh, a state church rather it, it's the period of Roman Catholicism which it grew and it became more entrenched and extended its power but Roman Catholicism was never the true church of the Lord but rather it was a conglomeration of apostate churches many different apostate churches that came together and were organized by Constantine in the fourth century and what Constantine did <clears throat> was he thirsted for power And the Roman Empire at his time was beginning its decline. And so what he did was stop persecution of of Christians. And then he made a commitment to Christianity, a commitment to false Christianity. And he brought together two factions of the empire. He brought together the paganism of the Roman Empire. He combined that with the apostate Christian churches of the time. And out of that came this beast that we call Roman Catholicism. So this new state church then had governmental power, and through that, it had the thrust to become the the dominant religious force in the world, this combination of church and government. Now, what true churches of the Lord would never do, we would never do that. We would never combine the state with the church, even if we had the opportunity to do it, because we believe in soul liberty. As I said in the beginning, we we can't force people to come into the church. And we know this, that when church and state get together, that out of that always comes a persecuting church. And whenever church and state are combined, that is an inevitable thing. Because when you deny the church, you also deny the state. And when you deny the state, that becomes anarchy. So it only makes sense that a church-state government is a persecuting government. Well, in the early Middle Ages... The Roman Empire was then split into two parts, into the east and into the west, and the split of the empire weakened the empire, so that in 476, Rome fell. The governmental half of that part of the world, the western world, was gone, and that left the Roman church to be the one that was the unifying factor. And so by 800 A.D., Charlemagne who's someone you've probably heard of, but Charlemagne began what is known as the Holy Roman Empire. And it was during that time that the Roman Catholic Church held sway over the kings of Europe. And during that time, Catholicism was anti-intellectual. Education was a threat to them. Now, you've heard the saying that ignorance is bliss. 
Well, those must have been very, very happy people because they were truly ignorant of the things of God, at least. But what they come to find out is that ignorance is not actually bliss. And people were still thirsting to learn things, to learn new things. But what the Roman Catholic Church was doing was suppressing all of that. They kept down cultural advancement. They kept down economic advance. They suppressed education. And so the darkness of that time was very, very deep. And the ones that we have to thank for that is the Roman Catholic Church. But that thirst for knowledge kept growing, and the Roman Catholic Church couldn't control it any longer, or they couldn't keep it out, I should say. So they thought that the best thing for them to do was to control education. And so they began the university system. And in this university system, they began to educate the scholars of Roman Catholicism. And so it was during this time, during this time in the Middle Ages, that out of that comes some of the worst heresies of Roman Catholicism. The Mass was developed during that time. Mariolatry was begun or at least increased during that time. The worship of idols and iconography, that became a large part of Roman Catholic doctrine. And then perhaps worst of all for us as Baptists or people during that time that were Baptists was the sanction of a formal tribunal to exterminate heretics. And that's what they claimed that we were. You know who the heretics are? That's us. That's the Baptist people. They claimed that the Baptists were heretics, and that's because we accepted none of the immorality or the perverted doctrines of Catholicism. So, Baptist people, going under these different names, became a threat to the Roman church. Not a violent threat, because that's never the method of the true church, but we became a threat to them because every soul that's saved is brought out from under that horrible system of Catholicism. And that, that, that started to break this iron grip that Catholicism had. And so what Baptist people did is they preached the gospel, they turned hearts to God, and thus this, this satanic system of Roman Catholicism was being torn down. And so they chose violence to try and stop us. And so they began this formal tribunal, and that tribunal is called the Inquisition. There were inquisitors that were commissioned by Rome to find heretics and to question them and to get them, if they could, to renounce their beliefs and then join with the Roman Catholic Church. Well, there was a monastic order called the Benedictines that uh, the Roman Church appointed over this, and they gave them free reign by any means that they wanted to to try to get these people to recant their beliefs and turn to Catholicism. And if they wouldn't do it, they threatened them with death. And so during the Inquisition, anybody that disagreed with Rome was put through a trial, through a mock trial. They forced confessions and recantations out of those that they could. And those that wouldn't confess or change, they killed. Or they so seriously maimed them that they wished that they were dead. And that formal tribunal was not just for a few years, not just for 10 years, 15 years, 100 years, but this thing went on all the way throughout the Middle Ages, all the way up until the end of the Protestant Reformation. And the amazing thing about this is that the Roman Catholics have never admitted to this, and the Roman Catholics have never recanted this. They've never said that they were sorry for all the atrocities that they have committed. And they have never taken down the mechanism for this, the apparatus for the Inquisition. That still exists in Roman Catholic books, on the Roman Catholic books today. Now, that moves us into the next area of discussion, 
And this outline is really a mess for you because what I've done is I've combined uh, letters A and B that we had in last week's lesson, and that's just a little review that I've just given you. And so we're going to start with letter C tonight, and if you need to get the other ones, then you have to go to the website or go to Brother Bob back there, and he'll make your day by giving you a copy of last week's lesson. So we're going to go on to C tonight in your outline, and we're going to discuss the Baptists that are in this period, the Baptist people. What were the Baptists called during the Middle Ages? Well, there were some of the names that were still in use. We've talked about the Montanist and the Novatians and the Donatist. Uh, those were names, different names, for the same people that held the same beliefs. And these beliefs that they held were the primitive beliefs of the New Testament church. So we've discussed those names, the Montanist, Novatians, and Donatist. And to that, we need to add another name that came into use during this time, and this is the Paulicians. The Paulicians. This is in the 7th to the 16th centuries. Now, the promise that Christ gave to the church at his ascension was that the power of the Holy Spirit would come upon the disciples, come upon the people that believed in him, and they would become witnesses to the uttermost part of the earth. And that promise was given to them to ensure perpetuity. I mean, we've discussed that. That's, that's why we're able to talk about church history tonight, because God made that promise come true. And there was much persecution through it all. The world was really a dark place, and that's why we say the Middle Ages are also called the Dark Ages. But during that time, the light of the gospel reached more and more people. That, that the Baptist people did not become withdrawn because of the persecution, but rather this evangelistic zeal that had been implanted into their hearts by the Holy Spirit and through, through their conversion caused them to be more evangelistic than ever. And so the more persecution that there was, the more determined that our, that our people, our forefathers, were to get the gospel out, to reach more people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so what you had in that time was a gospel that flowed like water throughout all the areas of the Roman Empire. And it flowed to all of these little countries of Europe and then also to the east into the Byzantine Empire. The gospel was spreading all over the place and it was becoming impossible to contain. And there were lots and lots of little groups that held on to the, to the truth of the word of God, separated by distances, separated by by the geography of uh, of the land and so many of them didn't even know about each other but these were true churches of the Lord Jesus Christ and what we can't do is talk about all of them i can't give the names of all of them but what we can do is talk about the largest groups the most prominent groups of that time so, some of those that we have more history about than others I mean, here, here's the plain fact of things. You can't track down the Baptist church through an earthly headquarters. We don't have a place for a headquarters of the Baptist church per se, but it, it exists in all these different congregations that are teaching the truth of God's word, and all of them are independent. So with all these many groups, all that we can do is just give you a little bit of information on the major ones. And one of these during that time was the Paulicians. These were people that were one of the most vigorously and consistently persecuted groups of all of this time. And these are people that represented primitive Christianity. These are people that held strong to the faith. They held on to the doctrines of God's word. Now you can see from the name that most likely it was derived from the Apostle Paul. Although we're not 
exactly sure if that's the case, but it's interesting considering where they were and what they believed. Now, they, they were Pauline in their approach to the Scriptures. Now, when we say Pauline doctrine, you should recognize what I'm talking about because people know when you say Pauline doctrine that what you're speaking of is the doctrines of grace. And so the origin and the name and the doctrine that they were teaching is a very interesting study because of the location of these Paulicians. Where they were was in the Taurus Mountains of Turkey. And that is actually ancient Cappadocia, Bithynia, and Galatia. And we know what the Apostle Paul did in those areas. He went in there and he preached the Gospels. He, gospel, he started many churches in that area. And at this particular time of history, these people were still holding on to the truths that the Apostle Paul taught. So Paul covered all this, all of this in, in his missionary journeys. And these people we're talking about are the most primitive of Christians. Now, I don't mean primitive like they lived in caves. They're not cavemen. I'm talking about primitive in holding on to the earliest of New Testament doctrine, which is what was given to them by Christ and the apostles. Now, this is what Walter Frederick Adnay said in the history of the Greek and Roman churches. He said that the Paulicians were Baptist. He said, therefore, it is quite arguable that they should be regarded as representing the survival of the most primitive type of Christianity, ancient Oriental Baptist. These people were in many respects Protestants before Protestantism. Now, I might add to that that he's certainly not talking about Protestants that came out of Roman Catholicism. That's not what he means by that statement. But actually, these people were protesters against people that split off from them and then went into heresies. And so when Adonai uses the word Protestant here, he, he's talking about th this difference of, 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 of doctrine, and especially he's referring to that doctrinal position that we now hold to. And so without going to other historians that will tell you the same thing, I'll just tell you this, that all of them agree that the Paulicians were older than the 7th century. That, that what they believed didn't just pop up in the 7th century. These are people that go back much further than that. And so the doctrines are, are older, and these are people that might never have seen the light of history. We might never even have known about these people except they came in conflict with the Byzantine Empire. And so in 752, Constantine V, the emperor, moved many of these Paulicians out of the Taurus Mountains and moved them into the Balkans. And then in 842, Theodora, the empress, martyred 100,000 of these Paulicians. Now, when I speak of the Byzantine Empire, I hope you understand what I'm talking about. That's the Eastern block of what we know, or it's what we call Eastern Catholicism. This is where you have the Orthodox Church. It's where you have uh, what we call now today the Russian Orthodox and the Greek Orthodox and so on. Those were the Catholics of the Eastern Empire. They're called the Byzantines. And so many of the Paulicians were forced to move out of their homeland or their places you know, where they lived there in the Taurus Mountains. They were forced into the Balkans. But when they moved into the Balkans, they were so evangelistic that they began to encroach upon the Western Empire. And now Western Catholicism had to contend with them. And so what happened then was they were shipped back towards 
the area around Palestine, and that's where they lived from then. But they had already, perme- uh, they had already uh, permeated most of Europe. They'd gone so far north as Britain, and in 1145, Henry II, who was the king of England, finally said, we've got to get rid of these people. And so what he did was to issue a decree to get rid of them by burning them at the stake. Now, one of the most remarkable things about these people is that despite so many of them tortured and killed, there were some parts of Europe where they actually outnumbered Roman Catholics. Now, you, you can imagine that there were very strong efforts then made to, to get rid of them. Uh, they, they were standing against what Rome was teaching they were, they were uh, the Roman Catholic Church tried to exterminate them. They, they claimed that they were teaching all kinds of unorthodox heresies, when really the only thing that they were teaching was against the heresies of Roman Catholicism. Now, these people, the Paulicians, are the same as the other groups that we've mentioned. They stood against Rome and their baptismal regeneration, and they said that is a corruption of the gospel. They were against attempts to force Old Testament ritualism into the New Testament church. And very simply for you, that means the priesthood. And so they were against the priesthood of Catholicism. And as I said, like others, they were charged with many beliefs that they never actually held. And so what Rome did was to lump all of these people into one heterodox group, no matter what they believed. Now, folks, this is really what causes you so much confusion when you study church history in the light of what Roman Catholicism says. Because they're taking these people, and they're taking every heresy that's known to man, some that none of us would ever touch. And they claim that these people taught those things. But that is a fabrication of Roman Catholicism because there were many of these people that taught the very same things. Most of them are teaching the very same things that Christ and the apostles taught. Now, let's look for just a minute at what they actually did believe. Now, remember what we're trying to do is we're, we're looking for the true church in history. And so we need to find out. Are there true churches of Christ in the 7th to the 16th centuries? Are these people actually the true church of the Lord Jesus Christ? So we need to know what they actually believed. Are they like these other groups? Are they like the Montanists, Novations, and so on? Are they still holding on to the doctrines of faith? And we find out that they were. We find that they denied ecclesiasticism. They rejected all forms of hierarchy in the church. And they said that the pastors of churches are equal in membership to the other members. And that the pastor is not to be set above like a priest in the Roman Catholic Church is. They rejected infant baptism. They baptized by immersion. And when there were people that were converted and came to them that had been baptized as infants or baptized in some other way, they took them and correctly baptized them. They baptized them by immersion. And then they practiced restricted communion. Now, that's something that most Baptists today have completely forgotten about. But the purpose of their practicing restricted communion was to make sure that they enjoyed fellowship of the supper, the Lord's Supper, among those who were a regenerated church membership. And so that tells us that they believed in soul liberty. That those who are members of the church must make a conscious commitment of repentance and faith in Christ. Now, also important to the discussion is that they were not some group that just rose up independent of everybody else. 
I mean, to be the true church, it has to maintain a link to other true churches, and that's what they did. And the doctrinal links that they had were to the Montanists and the Novatians, and they had links of fellowship with them as well. Now, what that shows us is that there was a consistent flow from New Testament churches to to them. That at first it starts with that New Testament church began with Jesus. It goes to the Apostolic Fathers. It goes to the Montanists, to the Novatians, to the Donatists, and then on up to the Paulicians. And what happens here is that you see that going all the way up into the 16th century, that now we're getting very, very close to modern Baptist history. So that's one group that we need to know about, the Paulicians. But then there's another group that is the most prominent of them all, and these are people that we really do need to be acquainted with, and that is the Waldenses. And the Waldenses were in the 5th to the 16th centuries. This is the largest, it's the most prominent group that covers this long, long period of time. And you can see that they go all the way back to the beginning of the Middle Ages, and they carry on through the Protestant Reformation. Well, the Waldenses... The name that they have is not derived from a person, although there are some who say that they got the name from Peter Waldo, who is one of their leaders, but they're not really named for the person, but they're actually named after the area where they lived. These are people that lived in the Piedmont, which is in northern Italy, and uh, that area is filled with, of course, all valleys because it's mountainous, mountains and valleys, and the word Waldens is actually a word that refers to valleys. On the other side of the border in France, they're called the Valdois. And there, that, that word Valdois has the same kind of connotation of a valley. Well, these are people that the Roman church was very cruel to. And in the 15th century, the Catholic church would do things like this. They would herd them into wooden huts that were made for this purpose. And they would force the people into these huts and they would lock the doors and they would set those huts on fire and burn the people to death. I mean, the Roman Catholics had nothing on Hitler. I mean, they knew how to kill people. And then as late as the 18th century, there were 8,000 troops that went on a rampage and they went into the, the valleys where the Valdois were and they killed all of them, including their animals. Now, speaking of the animals, there were many of the Valdois that lived in the Pyrenees Mountains. That's the area between uh, France and Spain. And uh, that's one of the most beautiful parts of Europe, I think. You have these lush green valleys that are there. And, and uh, it's really a beautiful place, although the food is awful. According to my distinctly Kentucky palate, the food there is awful. But I remember, I remember spending the night in Andorra, and we were uh, in a little mountain, on a mountain there in a little inn that was right on the side of the mountain, and it was the only place to stay, the only place to eat. And we went in there, and I ordered something that I have no idea what they, what they put in that. I mean, I had no idea what it was. But I looked outside, and I noticed that there was a pen next to the, uh, next to the hotel there. And there were goats in it and sheep and who knows what else. And so I don't know. They just went out there and cut something off of that and brought it in and put it on the plate, I think. But the, the place was really a beautiful place, uh, but the food may have killed more Baptists than the Catholics, I'm not sure. But it was that, as far as that goes. So these are people then that, that are herded into these remote valleys. They were, they were trying to escape this vigorous persecution by the Roman church. 
and they were all over the place. I mean, they were migrating from place to place, trying to stay one step ahead of the persecutors. And wherever they went, they touched people. Wherever they went, they were, they were preaching the gospel. They were carrying seeds of the gospel with them. And so there became swarms of these people all throughout Europe. And they became so prominent that there was one name that was given to them all, and that is the Waldenses. And that became a synonymous term for New Testament Christianity. Well, the antiquity of the Waldenses is very well attested. It's known that the Montanists and Novatians took shelter with them. It's known that they were the same in doctrine as these others. And I find this quote to be interesting. This came from Theodore Beza. Uh, Beza was the successor to John Calvin in Geneva. This is, what he, this is the comment he made about the Waldenses. He said, as for the Waldenses, I may be permitted to call them the very seed of the primitive purer church since they are those that have been upheld as is abundantly manifest by the wonderful providence of God, so that neither those endless storms and tempests by which the whole Christian world has been shaken for so many succeeding ages, nor those horrible persecutions which have been expressly raised against them, were ever able so far to prevail as to make them bend or yield a voluntary subjection to Roman tyranny and idolatry. I find it, I always find this interesting to read the quotes of, of Protestants about this. I mean, they admit that there was a pure church that existed apart from Roman Catholicism and that the church goes back to the time of Christ and that this church was existed in their day. And rather than going to the church that was existent, they tried to clean up Catholicism and they didn't join the churches that they admitted are connected to the New Testament. That's almost mind-boggling to me because we're not talking about ignorant people here. We're talking about, in the Protestant Reformation, among the Reformers, there are some of the most brilliant theologians that the world has ever seen. And yet, when it comes to this, they see this New Testament connection. They see the heart and the soul of Christianity connected through these groups to Christ and the apostles. And rather than go with them... They tried to clean up Catholicism, still holding on to some of their practices like infant baptism. And they were people, the Protestants, they were against soul liberty. They called the Waldenses a purer church, which means that they had purer practices and still they didn't join them. That just doesn't mesh. Now I want you to listen to a quote that was made by Dr. Alex Mustin. Uh, this was in consideration of uh, Oliver Cromwell, who in the 17th century had a very high regard for the Waldenses. Now, if you don't know the history of Cromwell, I don't have time to go in that tonight, but Cromnell, Cromwell was, uh, was leading England at a time when the monarchy had been overthrown. That wasn't a very long time, but Oliver Cromwell led them, and he was a very religious man and a godly man, and he had this to say about the Waldenses, or actually what he did was to commission a report concerning the Waldenses, <clears throat> and the results of that report said that they were the most ancient stock of pure religion. So Mustin wrote about this, and he said, the Valdois of the Alps are, now remember, that's the Waldenses as well, same thing. <clears throat> they are, in our view, primitive Christians, or inheritors of the primitive church, who have been preserved in these valleys from the alternative successively, uh, successively introduced by the church of Rome. It is not they 
who separated from Catholicism, but Catholicism which separated from them in modifying the primitive worship. Now, isn't that a telling quote? People say that we are Protestants and that we came out of the Catholic Church, but real church history says that the Catholics were the schismatics. The Catholics are the ones that split off from the truth, not us. Now, this is kind of an interesting thing to me. I was uh, writing to another pastor. Uh, This was actually a pastor in the Middle East. He made a comment in his letter to me that the doctrines that Calvin taught on grace were not in existence before Calvin. Now, that's often the claim of Baptists who don't know their own history. They're so opposed to the doctrines that they think that somehow Calvin invented those doctrines and that what we're doing is we're preaching Calvin's gospel. Well, I can tell you something about Calvin. I can care two hoots about Calvin or what Calvin said or what Calvin did. I don't care what Calvin said or what he did, except when he may have said something that was what the Bible says. Now, that's a different story. But as far as Calvin is concerned, I don't care about that. But here is uh, this next quote. is very helpful to us because the Waldensies were asked about what they believe, and we're talking about enough recent history that we have records of what they believed. And so before Calvin was ever heard of, they were preaching Reformation doctrine, and they've been preaching it for centuries. Now, when you talk about Reformation doctrine, uh, you say, well, how can you have Reformation doctrine before the Reformation? be a hard thing to do, wouldn't it? Well, what was, we'll see in just a minute that Calvin brought some of these doctrines and Luther brought some of the doctrines back to light that had been hidden under Roman Catholicism, but that doesn't mean they weren't in existence. I mean, these things were still being taught. Now, listen to this quote from Dutch Reformed historian Wilhelmus of Brackel. He said, where was the Reformed church prior to Zwingli, Luther, and Calvin? Is there a Reformed church actually before them? Here's his answer. First of all, the true church remains steadfast by reason of her durability, a durability which does not fluctuate. True doctrine is an infallible distinguishing mark of the church. Wherever true doctrine resides, there also is the church. Prior to Luther, this church existed wherever this true doctrine, which never ceased to be, was to be found. The church existed in several independent churches which maintained separation from popery. Such churches existed since early times in the southern parts of France as well as in some parts of England, Scotland, Bohemia, and also in the Piedmont. Against these churches, popes have initiated many persecutions, but they continue to exist until this day. Prior to the time of Zwingli and Luther, there have been very many who adhered to the same doctrine, and that Zwingli, Luther, and Calvin had by renewal brought this doctrine to light. Now, that's a very simple thing to figure out. What he's saying there is that Luther, Calvin, and Zwingli did not invent these doctrines. Now, let me me just stop there for a second. Again, we know what these churches taught. We know it through the writings that they left. And they taught the doctrines of grace just as I've taught you in this church. So... Are we going to exclude them? And we're going to say, oh, well, no, these are not true New Testament churches. They're not teaching the truth. Well, if we do that, then you know what's happened to us? We as Baptists have lost a link through this time to the New Testament church. And so if the 
If we deny the doctrines of grace, or those that do, I should say, those that deny them, when it comes to church history, they're going to find themselves up against a brick wall. Because the true church runs right through these groups that taught these things. So either you accept these groups as teaching New Testament doctrine, or you say they have no link to the New Testament. And that becomes a huge problem for us, because then we have no history that connects us to the New Testament church. Now, going on, this historian, Brackle, quoted from Rainerius, who was a leader in the Inquisition, and you might remember that I gave you this quote before. This was said in 1215. Rainerius, being a leader of the Inquisition, he said, Among all the sects that either are or have been, there is none more detrimental to the Roman Catholic Church than the Leonists. Now, Leonists are the same as the Valdois and the Waldenses, just another name for them. It is the sect that is of the longest standing of any, for some say it has existed since the time of the apostles. It is the most general of all sects, for scarcely is there any country to be found where this sect has not been embraced. This sect has a great appearance of godliness, since they live righteously before all men, believe all that God has said, and maintain, listen, and maintain all the articles contained in the Sibylum. Now that is the 12 articles of faith of the Waldenses. And then Abrakel goes on to say, such is the witness of these parties. Do you ask whether the Reformed Church existed prior to Luther? To this I reply, that she was to be found among those whom we have just mentioned, that is, those residing in the Piedmont among the Waldenses. Well, there's many more of those quotes. I mean, it's, it's no mystery what these people taught. It's New Testament doctrine. And when Abrakel used the term Reformed Church, what he means by that is the evangelical church that has Reformation doctrine, or he simply means the doctrines of grace. So we as Baptists then, we, uh, or a Baptist rather, that says that there is no Calvinistic doctrine before Calvin really doesn't know Baptist history. Spurgeon said that it's just a nickname to call it Calvinism because it's nothing other than the doctrine of Christ and the apostles. Now, what I'll tell you is I care nothing at all for the name Calvinism. It doesn't, I don't care anything at all about that. I said I don't care anything about John Calvin. All I want to know is what does the Bible teach? Well, we go on here, and, and I want to show you at a later time how that flows into the modern Baptist church, and, and that will be when all the other names are dropped and all that we have is simply the name Baptist. And we'll talk about that as how that doctrine flows to the churches up to our time. Now, there is some more information that you do need to know about the Waldenses, and, and that's because they weren't immune to changes in doctrine. There were some of them that when the Protestant Reformation came along, they found commonality with Reformation doctrine, and they began to accept too much of it. Now, you need to remember this, that the error of the Reformers was not in their soteriology. That means the doctrine of salvation. The Reformers didn't err on the doctrine of salvation. We know very clearly Luther taught justification by faith alone, and the Reformers stuck by that. They stuck by the solas of the Reformation. And so their soteriology is correct. The problem with them is their ecclesiology. That's the doctrine of the church. They were wrong on the doctrine of the church, and they went terribly wrong on that. So the Waldenses remind me of distinctions that we find in Baptists today. I mean, you have different groups of Baptists. You have some very conservative Baptists. That would be Baptists like 
Berean Baptist and many of the independent fundamental churches, very conservative Baptist. But then you have others like the American Baptist Convention that accept every conceivable compromise that there is. So there were radical groups during this time and there were moderate groups during this time. And the radical groups are the ones that held on to primitive Christianity and they wouldn't compromise no matter what. They were going to stick to the truth no matter what it cost them. But you have this group of moderates among the Waldenses and what they're interested in is avoiding detection. And so what they would do is they would go to the Roman Catholic Mass and they would send their children to be baptized. And what they tried to do was to fly under the radar in order to avoid the persecution. The radicals would never do that. They never did. So when the Protestant Reformation began, the moderate Waldenses found commonality with the Protestants, and so they joined Calvin to stand against Catholicism. They tried to help Calvin fight back against the Roman Catholics when in his area there was about to begin an all-out war. And so the Waldenses joined up with Calvin, and what happened to them, they eventually got sucked up into Protestantism, and they adopted their practices, things like infant baptism. And if you've ever heard of the Huguenots in France, you heard of them? The Huguenots, that's what these people are. They're, they were, the Huguenots are transitioned, moderate Waldenses. And what they did later was to begin their own church in the Presbyterian model. But the radical Waldenses never identified with Protestants. What they were were the Anabaptists. And, of course, they were persecuted by Romans and Protestants alike. Now, in the preceding centuries, then, you can find Waldenses that were like other groups, like the true church. They grew and they became strong. And in the 13th to the 15th centuries, the Pope sent out crusades specifically to get rid of them. So the inquisitors then turned into an army that marched into those valleys where they were hiding. And there was this all-out war against them. And I just mentioned a moment ago the slaughter of the Valdois in the Pyrenees Mountains. So there were hundreds and thousands of these people. And it's really hard for us to imagine that because we have been conditioned to believe Roman Catholic propaganda that says that just about everybody in the Middle Ages was a Catholic. But that's not true. There were thousands upon thousands and hundreds of thousands of people who believed just like we do. Now, the Roman Catholic Church has, has tried to cover up much of this. I read ro one Roman Catholic history that said that maybe, maybe there were about 50 people killed in the Inquisition. That's what the Roman Catholics will tell you. So the Waldenses continued to grow, and as far as doctrine is concerned, uh, you get into the time of the Protestant Reformation, and these are people that mostly agreed with Calvin. Uh, Luther was too far on the other side, too, well, they, Luther was just you know, not, not quite with them. And so they went with Calvin because his teachings were more closely aligned to the doctrines of grace as they understood them. So the Waldenses, many of them welcomed the Reformation when it came until they found out that the Protestants were too much like warmed-over Catholics. And uh, as I mentioned, some of them went all the way over into Protestantism, but those radicals in the Waldenses never did. Now, taking a look at their doctrine, we'll try to hurry here to finish up. We look at their doctrine, and, and you do need to remember, we're talking pre-Reformation here. And this is what we find in what is known as the Waldensian version. This came out in, uh, this, was, th this document is dated to 1180. 
And the Waldenses denied the Roman Catholic Mass. They opposed Roman Catholic traditions in place of Scripture. They believed in believers' baptism. They believed in salvation by grace. And this document also says they believed in divine predestination. They translated scriptures into their own tongue. They rejected infant baptism. They rejected the Pope. And one of the things that they did in their communion was they gave the, the cup and the bread to the people. Now, at that time, Roman Catholicism had uh, booze in their cup, and they reserved the cup for the priest only and gave the people the bread. And then you can get this part of it, that Roman inquisitors that were sent to find these people came back, and they said that they learned more from the women and the children than they did from their own priest. They learned more about the Bible from the women and children than they did from Roman Catholic priests. Now, that's a testimony. Now, listen to what historian John T. Christian said. He said, The first distinguishing principle of the Waldenses bore on daily conduct and was summed up in the words of the apostle, We ought to obey God rather than man. This, Roman Catholics interpreted to mean a refusal to submit to the authority of the Pope and prelates. Do you think? We ought to obey God rather than men, and they took that to mean we don't obey the Pope? Yeah, that's pretty much what they were doing. This was a positive affirmation of the scriptural grounds for religious independence, and it contained the principles of religious freedom avowed by the Anabaptists of the Reformation. The second distinguishing principle was the authority and popular use of the Holy Scriptures. The Bible was a living book, and there were those among them who could quote the entire book from memory. The third principle was the importance of preaching and the right of laymen to exercise that function. Now, you read that, and that sounds a whole lot like us, doesn't it? I mean, this, this is the legacy. This, this is what our legacy flows through in that time of history. And believe, Berean Baptist still believes these same things. We take the Bible, we preach it, and we live by it. Now, I do like this, this last line from John Christian. It's all good. But the third principle that he gave was the importance of preaching. And what he said was that laymen could do it. So this is not something that's reserved for priests. The priests don't have this special right to interpret the Word of God. But you and I, you in the pew, you have as much right to interpret the Word of God as I do. And you have, you have that ability through the power of the Holy Spirit. And you ought to do that. You ought to read and interpret God's Word. And I hope that you're doing that because that's what Baptists have done for centuries. So there's the note that I want to close on tonight. That the power of preaching, that preaching is the emphasis. That's the emphasis of the church. And when God's Word is preached, people's lives are changed. That's the importance of preaching the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Cre keep preaching that because lives are changed through the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the lesson we've had tonight and we're thankful that we can look back through history and we can find men and women who stood strong on the doctrines of the faith that faced terrible persecutions, went through many, many different things and still kept holding on to the doctrines that Christ gave. And we know that there's no way that anybody can do that unless there has been a real change that's taken place in their hearts, that they know you and you've given them the power to persevere through all of the hardships they experienced. Lord, we, we know that you still supply that kind of power today 
And so we ask you that you would help us to hold on to the doctrines that we have learned. Help us to contend for the faith in Berean Baptist Church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.